Hi, I'm Alexis. And I'm Dre. This is Altered, a wedding podcast that focuses on weddings affected by the pandemic. And everything in between. Each week, we will talk to different couples from all over. And wedding vendors across the world. To show that even though we may be going through unprecedented times, your special day is still within reach. Back in September, Dre and I virtually sat down with Krishma, who is based in Sydney, Australia. So tell us, how long have you and your fiancé been engaged? My fiancé, Deeraj, proposed in February 2019, so that's a year and a half over. Yeah, quite a long time. <laughs> oh, tell us the story. Were you expecting it? Oh, no, no, no. So he had this knack of taking me on trips that were very romantic several times before he actually proposed. So we ended up being in South Korea. So we were living in Singapore at the time and we were traveling. He'd planned like a travel photo shoot, which was something I had wanted to do because I make a lot of journals and scrapbooks and sort of picture books. And it was this very interesting moment where we had a photographer, we were walking through this beautiful island called Nami Island. It's where they shoot all the Korean documentaries and dramas. And then he proposed in the middle of woods and forests and it was very overwhelming and I definitely wasn't expecting it. When and where were you slated to get married? So our wedding was set for, there's a little island in Vietnam that we both love called Phu Quoc. It's south of Vietnam. And it was sort of the midpoint between where he's from, which is Singapore, and where I'm from, which is Sydney. So we sort of found a random island, which makes a lot of sense because we met at a wedding on another random island called Borneo. So we thought, what better way than to have our wedding at another random island? (laughs) So it was planned to be in June 2020 and then we postponed for January next year and then we postponed for May next year and now we're not sure if it will still go ahead in May. So we're just deciding now we're going to wait. How did you handle communicating with your wedding guests? I tried to be very creative with my postponement notices. I did like a postponement bulletin, (laughs) like a newspaper bulletin. And then I did that twice as like a breaking news headline kind of thing for the second time. You can tell I'm a marketer. And then for the third time, which was the final, I was like, okay, okay, what can I do? I'm going to call it a change the date notice. That's what I'm going to do. And now I've run out of creative ideas. It's so strange not having a clear end to when everything will be over to be able to be working towards like a concrete target. And I think that's what's so frustrating for so many right now. It's a bit of an emotional roller coaster because people don't realize when they ask you, you know, you'll be out and you'll be with friends and you'll have guests ask you about the plan. What are you doing? When's it happening? How many people? Am I still invited? There's such fair questions, but it feels a little bit overwhelming because there's very little you can do. All you can do is wait and wait until something becomes clear. Yeah, definitely feels like every day you have to really take every day as it's coming to you just because otherwise I think you just get very overwhelmed very quickly (laughs) with the uncertainty of it all. We have a lot of family from kind of scattered around the world. So you can tell from our names, I'm of Indian kind of descent. So it's an Indian wedding, which has its own levels of complexity because it's four days, not one. (laughs) And family is essentially everywhere. So not just in Sydney, Singapore, California, some in India, Dubai, 
Caribbean, different islands. Everyone's kind of everywhere. (laughs) How far along were you in the wedding planning process before your first postponement? We were four weeks out from the wedding itself when we postponed the first time. Yeah, it was really horrible. Everything was booked, every vendor, all the plane tickets, all our guests' plane tickets, all the accommodation. And then I think four weeks before, so back in April, May, the government basically said closure of all borders for Australia. Quarantine obviously became a mandatory thing. And then also my fiancé is not a PR of Australia. He's on a certain type of tourist visa. It's a visa that's not like me. He's not a citizen. So he can't actually leave the country as and when he pleases because he wouldn't necessarily be allowed to come back in. So that added a layer of dimension. And my parents aren't particularly young. So the idea of making them travel at a time like this didn't feel very nice. And all our guests as well, they're coming there because they love us and they're spending so much of their effort. Having them really comfortable was something that was just critical for us. I think when we first postponed, we thought it would be like a couple of months. We were like, oh, yeah, this whole thing will be over by January next year for sure. So we were very optimistically just rebooking, resetting. We basically just took all the same service providers because we've obviously paid all our deposits and we appreciate that they're also under the pump right now having lost quite a lot of their incomes for the year. So we just wanted to keep everyone kind of together. So we just basically found a date that could work for everybody and we're like, all right, let's lock in January. We got this. And then it got to August and we were sort of like, oh, January's not looking so good, is it? We're well seasoned. We know what to do. Let's kick it to May. We got this. Then we put it in May. And then just recently, the Australian government's basically grounding all flights, non-essential flights out until probably the latter end of next year. So yeah, now we're a bit defeated. We're a little like, okay, let's just see how we go. Maybe wait a little bit until next year and then see how we can reschedule and change things. I think maybe for us it's difficult because we have our hearts set on a particular style of wedding. We've picked everything. We've paid for everything. So it's hard to want to change the plan in any way. How big was your wedding going to be? Or is it going to be? So we will have probably around 250 guests coming in from around the world. That's quite normal, to be honest. Actually, that's considered small for an Indian wedding. We did a big engagement event in Sydney, so we kind of were able to make sure that all of the Sydney guests were catered to. There were 350 people there. We were able to keep the overseas one just a tiny bit smaller. I laugh as I say a tiny bit smaller because 250 people is a lot of people still, but I think it'll still be lovely because, you know, when you're going that far, you know the people who love you most are going to be there and Deerich has a huge family. So for him, I think out of his guest list of 150, 120 or 130 are family members. My wedding was a little over 200. We separated from die if they don't, love to have, like to have. (laughs) That's the three categories we did. (laughs) So could you explain maybe a traditional Indian wedding? What was your wedding going to be like? in the same vein of an Indian wedding, which is different from like an American traditional wedding or I mean, anywhere around the world, like weddings are so different depending on culture. 
Totally. So Indian weddings normally have multiple festivities. You only have one actual wedding day. That's called a Ferraz. But in the lead up, you have a few different events and all of them are designed to kind of drum up excitement for the day itself. So you'll start off with getting your henna done. So that's the henna tattoo that you have in your hands and your feet. So usually the bride will have that done with sort of her bridesmaids and her family members. And the groom side might choose to do something separate. Then you'll have what's called a sangeet. That's my favorite because I'm a dancer. It's a big dance kind of performance. So the boys side put on performances, the girls side put on performances and you kind of battle it out. Um, And my fiance is absolutely not a dancer, nor any of his family members. And all my bridesmaids, all my friends, myself, we're all very into it. So you can imagine the the level of excitement. And then we have the next day, you'll have your actual wedding. And then you'll probably have a few things in the morning of the wedding, like halvi, which is where they put this orange powder on you. You'll have a kalira and chura ceremony. Also, just anecdotally, I'm Punjabi Indian, so that has its own (laughs) specifics of what you do. So on the morning of the wedding, they put on these special bangles. They're called Kalira. They're like these dangling ornaments that they put around your wrists. And before the wedding, you shake them over your bridesmaids and it's to give them luck for their wedding. So kind of like the idea of throwing the bouquet, you're next. It's sort of that, I guess, with someone shaking something over your head. And then you'll have your wedding. The ceremony is usually by a fire. So there's a little fire in the center. Different to sort of a Western wedding, I suppose, is that you'll actually have your family up on the altar with you. So you'll have yourself, your parents, and sometimes you'll have siblings. Bit difficult when they're all married with kids. When they're married with kids, you're just like, oh my God, this is a circus here. Like that was a point of contention for me. I was like, why are there so many people up here? You won't even see me. I'm so little. Your whole family's six foot. I'm five foot two. No one's going to see me. (laughs) The worst part is we have to take our shoes off on this. So I lose all my height. So are you planning on wearing heels? I know I'm too klutzy, and thus will be wearing ballet flats. I may have been stalking for years. I am planning on wearing heels. I just have to take them off when I get onto the altar. I've requested the wedding planners to put some kind of stool or ledge that I can stand on. And then after that, you'll obviously have a reception, which is very similar to a regular reception, just speeches, first dance, things like that. So that's kind of what our wedding was going to be. And it was sort of structured over three days in Vietnam, sort of with events morning and night for the three days. Wonderful. Wow, that sounds awesome. Yeah. You guys have to pick one wedding dress. We need to pick like seven. (laughs) Are you wearing the same dress every day or is it different? How many outfits do you have to kind of plan for? I needed six in the end for the wedding festivities. So you have a pre-wedding shoot, your bridal mandy in your room, then the mandy that you do, mandy is henna, sorry, with the guests. That's another outfit. Then the sangeet than the wedding and reception. So I'm doing six (laughs) outfit changes. I do love fashion and I love Indian designers. They're very beautiful and rich and they're also very 
different. So each of my outfits is very, very different. Like one's a Indian inspired cocktail dress. One's more of a traditional langar, which is like the top and skirt. So I've tried to keep them super different with different colors. And I've actually been very unconventional, so to speak, because Indian brides always wear red and I'm not wearing red. I know. So, so scandalous. Is there a meaning behind the color? Well, I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> We're supposed to wear warm colors, so orange, pink, red. Those are the colors you're supposed to wear. I think that's incredible that you can have so many different options that you all love because I think one of the hard things is having to pick. I actually, I have two dresses, which is a bit of a story, and I'm trying to figure out I might have a mini Moni next year, which I'll wear one of the dresses to, and then the Sonoma wedding will be the main event. I had to fly to India find the outfits that I liked. I spent two weeks there trying to find what I needed. That's another interesting thing with all these travel restrictions. I can't go back and fit for my clothes. So they're all stuck. So you flew to India to go shopping. So you didn't do any of your wedding dress shopping in Sydney. It doesn't really exist in Sydney, to be honest. It's incredibly expensive and very few kind of people It's not like having access to enough variety. If you're someone who loves Indian fashion and knows the different designers and knows what you could get for the same kind of price. And when you're getting six, seven outfits for yourself, just remember everyone else in your family also needs the six, seven outfits and the groom. So it makes a bit of sense to kind of, you know, economies of scale, go there, find everything, pick it up and bring it back. And normally you go twice. You just go once to pick and fit, kind of like take your measurements. And then you come back to do like a final fitting, which I'm not able to do at the moment. How have you been handling fittings in that case? So I've tried to do them virtually, which is not proving to be very effective at all. And Hindi is my second language. It's really not something I speak fluently enough to have a conversation over the phone. What's your plan for the final handoff? Are you thinking of getting everything shipped to you directly? So I think I've got a good system going. So what I do is I get them to put the outfit on a mannequin. Then I get them to show me the measurement chart that they took. I sit with like a tape measure myself and then I get them to, you know, take the tape measure around the bust and show me an image of what number it comes up. So for example, it'll say like 30 inches or 32 inches or whatever it might be. And I kind of just sit there playing with the tape measure. (laughs) He's just like, oh, another one again? Oh, okay. So that's the method I've come up with so far not been that successful. So something arrived, which was quite awful. It was about four inches too wide and about three inches too long. So it was a bit sad because I put so much effort into trying to get it right. But look, I think everyone's really understanding that we can't fly. There's nothing we can do. So we've got to sort this out. So I basically just then pinned everything where I thought it was wrong and then sent it back to India. And now they're going to try and fix it. So it's a lot of cost, I'd say, in kind of shipping things to and fro. But in the absence of a better idea... I think that's a brilliant way to handle it. I think I'll feel a little bit better when the clothes are here. At least I'll feel like something's ticked off the list. And it's something that's semi in my control because I can control shipping and bringing things in. And the rest of it's completely out of my control. My heart goes out to the entire wedding industry and the hospitality industry because... I mean, our wedding planners would normally have at least two to three weddings every month. And that went from obviously so many to zero very quickly. It is. I know that's something we're 
going to be focusing on is talking to different vendors who are affected and their stories and the industry from their perspective for that very reason. Because it's amazing how huge the industry is all over the world. And the fact that it's taking such a hit, how is it ultimately going to change the whole wedding industry moving forwards? It's going to be really interesting to see. I'm an optimist. I hope there's some kind of silver lining, something that makes it better. You know, maybe they'll go from having two bookings a month to like 10. (laughs) I really hope so. I'm so curious if there will be a surge in ceremonies. I feel just as bad for 2021 brides because they're battling everybody's postponements from 2020. So getting into 2021 is not easy. Definitely relate to that. (laughs) Onslaught, just like a flood. You mentioned you had an engagement party, which is not necessarily a common thing for all couples. Can you talk about your experience with that? Yes. I will circle back to the start for this one. I'll drop a little bombshell. So we actually did a micro wedding before it was a trend, just so everyone knows. So we did a very sneaky, very tiny 20-person kind of beautiful garden sort of Western ceremony. So I got to wear a beautiful white dress. It was very, very simple. Was there any meaning behind the date of that ceremony? We'd chosen the date to be exactly one year before our Indian wedding. So it was going to be the same wedding anniversary. That was the plan. Now I've just said, we're having two a year and you're giving me two presents every year. And then after that, I said, okay, now that we've done kind of the more legal things and we kind of sorted on certain things, because that's what helps you kind of do what I like to call the paperwork, the logistics, like joint bank accounts, buying a house, all these kind of things that are very stressful and a lot easier when you have documentation that just says you're married. So I said, let's just do that and keep it super hush hush. But we offended so many people. (laughs) People were so upset. They were like, you just did a shotgun wedding and just completely ignored us. You didn't invite any of your family. And we're like, guys, this was just a paper signing. It was supposed to be very chilled out. And we're going to have our big Indian wedding next year. You'll all be invited. Don't worry. And then we said, okay, there's such a long gap between the weddings now. There's a year. So let's do a really big engagement and make it like a more proper Indian engagement, which is called a Roka. And we made it really big. It was a big dance party. We made the event kind of our own. And we chose to do it because we felt it gave us a chance to celebrate in Sydney with so many of our friends and family and kind of tie us over into the following year, which is what we thought would be our wedding. So it's quite funny because our marriage certificate will say one age when we got married, but actually it's going to be in the end like three years later. So the most perfect plan sometimes just goes so awry. So I mean, clearly we planned it a lot and we thought it was going to be perfect. And we thought that that kind of trajectory of having a really pretty small ceremony, then a really big event, and then leading up to sort of an overseas wedding was the right, I guess, journey for us. How much time off were you planning to take? I also had tried to get, I had gotten approval of my leave from work. So I was going to take seven weeks off work, which is huge. Like, I don't know how I negotiated that or got that over the line. (laughs) But now I don't know if that's still approved or how I'll get it back. But I think one thing this whole experience has taught me is a wedding is really kind of this once in a lifetime, or you hope it's going to be once in a lifetime. And the person you're with is the person you're going to be with for so many years to come. So if you have to 
find your path and find a way to make the plans that you want it happen. Even if they're spread like mine over three years, <laughs> you just have to change the narrative. You know, it can, you change it to, we had the best events. They went over three years. We party for three years instead of, you know, the traditional one day. It's so important to be positive. There's so much negative right now. And to be able to just put out the positivity, I think is so needed. It's very tough because every day you get up, you do get asked questions. You face a lot of judgment. I would say, and I'm sure all brides listening to this or even just in the same boat, people will say things like, oh, why don't you just cancel? Why don't you just postpone again? Why don't you just have a small wedding? Oh, dude, I can so relate. I've had a similar experience with people giving advice, but it really just boils down to that at the moment, Rich and I just don't feel comfortable because things are too much in limbo to know how things are going to look in six months. For us, the other things we've been kind of navigating at the moment is whether or not to put down a deposit for our caterer. And what's holding us up is wanting to do a tasting at both companies that we've narrowed the list down to. We don't want to rush through things we've been looking forward to. And at the very least, if one of the catering companies has another couple interested in the same date, we would then have the right of first refusal. We have the exact same thing. And I think vendors also being really understanding because in reality, that vendor would love to have both weddings. They would love to not have to choose between the two. So I've also been quite considerate, I would say. So if a vendor tells me I've got another wedding booked on that day, I don't force my postponement there. I'll move it around because I completely understand where they're coming from. And there is a lot of uncertainty right now. And I think we're all getting used to this ambiguity and this, let me live in the now, let me live in the present and the moment that I have in front of me. The beautiful thing in all this, and it's like, kind of hard to remember is you have a beautiful partner in your life. So to have that and to try and hold on to that and that be the core of what you remember every day, that's the most important. You're so right. It's so important to keep things in perspective. What would you say has been one of the more challenging things you've had to deal with at the moment? We have a lot of added layers of cultural complexity on our end. Being Indian, you've got this series of very judgmental people who are your parents' friends who love to sort of pass forward their judgments and we weren't supposed to live together before we got married. That was this big drama. And then we just sort of said, look, the wedding's so postponed. Nobody knows when that's going to happen. I'm not going to keep renting and having him rent separately. That makes absolutely no sense. We need to just move on with our financial goals and make the most of the year. Totally. <laughs> How did you ultimately make the decision to postpone your wedding rather than cancel? I think canceling was never something we intended to do. We knew immediately that we're going to have this wedding regardless. It just might not be as and when we originally intended. I think the decision to cancel, I mean, that's a very challenging one. I'm not sure many people are fully canceling. I think most people are just trying to postpone and you just keep postponing until <laughs> in my case I just keep going until I can do it I think canceling a wedding is a really big call if you're someone who doesn't care necessarily about having people around when you get married so there are some people who would prefer to elope or have something with just the couple then you know maybe it's the perfect excuse almost to cancel or to reduce the size of the scale of the event but the ultimate decision personally it's so 
particular to the couple. So I feel bad saying anything because I know everyone's going through their own journey and their own set of circumstances as well. Family members being unwell or maybe being more senior makes it difficult for you to make those choices. But for us, we had a conversation with our family. We decided amongst ourselves what we wanted and we sort of said, you know what, everything's paid for. We put the money aside a long time ago. The sunk costs, like if we just think of it from a financial perspective, there's too many sunk costs. Let's just postpone. I think that's probably what really helped in your situation too, because I didn't really plan much of my wedding. I do have to <laughs> make that decision. My husband is an event planner, so it was his jam. And as we were talking about the financial part of it, I was like, man, could we just not do it and travel for like a month or two. <laughs> but at the same time, it was very important to him. And so of course I wanted to do it because it's important to him. It's important to me. And it was important to other members of our family too. So even though I was like, oh, I would love to elope, it just wasn't in the cards. And I'm very happy that we did it. You're touching on what happens in a wedding, which is it is about the couple, but it does become about the two families and them coming together and everyone feeling kind of excited for you together, if that makes sense. So there's this holistic thing with weddings that you don't know until you're actually going through it. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that's wonderful. What changes needed to be made to your wedding because of the pandemic? So for us, we kept it simple. We said we're going to change nothing other than the date. <laughs> We will keep changing the date until the plan can be the plan <laughs> because we were only four weeks out when we did postpone. And as a result, everything was done. We'd already spent the year prior doing all the hard work on decor and picking the right vendors and putting in the deposits and saving where we can and allocating budget to, you know, the DJ and things that we thought were really important and the photography. So in our minds, we're like, we've actually in a situation where this wedding is planned, it's done. I'm not going to spend any more time laboring over anything to do with this wedding. <laughs> How did you communicate with your vendors in Vietnam? Yeah. So we did a trip to Phu Quoc Island last year. We were in Vietnam. So when I say things like that, I do start to feel a little emotional because I Obviously, I remember what could have been. So that's what I meant by I have to take every day as it comes because there's those moments where you're like, oh, wow, that hurts. But we were there this time last year and we were picking between some hotels. Our wedding planners came as well. So our wedding planners are from Bali, actually. So they flew in to meet us. We sort of checked out the different venues. We had our hearts set on the venue we chose. It required a lot of negotiation to get it to a place. And that's where my fiance steps aside and just lets me take over. <laughs> All right, numbers, guys, let's do this. But I think the international Indian destination wedding scene is actually a really big industry. So all of our friends actually have the exact same type of wedding. So an overseas destination wedding. It's normal because the couples are always from different countries and their families are always in different countries. And when you have something in your home country, you have a lot more obligations to a lot more people. <laughs> so by doing it overseas, you remove some of that complexity. And for us, we found some people who we've flown from other weddings that we'd been to. We sort of decided we'd fly them in. And that's where it gets tricky because obviously you're paying for their flights, their accommodation and their food for the whole three days. So that's where that notion of sunk costs and the deposits that have been paid and the deposits on everyone's kind of accommodations been paid. So 
it's just this idea of saying you've planned everything. It's done essentially. Now when the wedding happens, you're just going to rock up and enjoy it. There's a greater appreciation almost because it's like finally it's happening. And so, yeah, like you said, it you're not as worried about the details in the moment and things that you can be upset about because everything's going wrong. I'm just happy it's happening. <laughs> Would you mind if we circled back to something you said before we started recording about why you were interested in doing our show? Yeah, I think for me, getting the chance to talk about it in a very safe space with people who obviously aren't judgmental and aren't, you know, giving me any advice, but more just listening, it feels quite cathartic and it feels like a little bit of an outlet that I wouldn't otherwise normally get. Normally, when you talk about it, I think it makes people a little bit uncomfortable because they're not quite sure what to say to you. And I think often people want to try and offer you something positive. That's normally what people will try. And I think they don't realize when they do that, without actually listening to the situation, they come off as being a little bit flippant or dismissive of what you're actually feeling. So whenever anyone starts a sentence with, at least you, dot, 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 dot. They're not really listening to what's going on in your world and why you might be feeling how you're feeling. So it's really nice to get the chance to talk about it. And then in addition to that, I've joined a couple of Facebook groups with brides from around the world. There are a lot of US brides on there and it's amazing because so many girls going through the exact same thing and you just start to realize that you're really not alone. And I thought by talking about it a little bit more, maybe, I don't know, maybe my journey could help someone else or could help someone feel like they're not alone because they're not. <laughs> and that's a nice thing to feel. It can feel so overwhelming as well. And you do feel alone. And even within your own relationship, sometimes you feel alone because the other person doesn't feel so passionately about something or they don't react the way you react. So I get quite sad and I'm visibly sad. Whereas my fiance, he sort of says things like, well, it's out of my control. What can I do? And then he'll go play FIFA. And you're like, oh, okay. We <laughs> <laughs> process things differently. That actually came up this morning with Richard. He was like, you know, it doesn't matter how long we're engaged. We're together. It's not like getting married will change that. I'm like, I know, but it's that celebration of love with those closest to you and your family. And it's something that we've all, like you see it in film, you see it in so many different ways. And it's so surreal after having been a bridesmaid several times to actually be that person is it's super surreal. And it's very weird to be that person in a pandemic where you're having to be creative in ways that no one's ever had to deal with before. So you've been looking for advice is with the Facebook group. I think that's really interesting. I actually didn't even know about that. I'll have to check that out. Brides of 2020 and Brides of 2021. Oh, what's your favorite wedding song? <laughs> None of them will be relevant to you because they're all in Indian. <laughs> they're all Hindi. <laughs> that's the other thing. So all our dancers were prepared and they were prepared to like very current music. So obviously this year they've released new music and you're like, oh, should I redo these dances or should I just keep the current ones? <laughs> I don't know why we make it so complicated in Indian culture. Like, why not just keep it simple? <laughs> like, why? But I love a lot of different songs, honestly. Like, Western wedding songs are so beautiful as well. And, I mean, realistically, like, you can't go past Ed Sheeran's Perfect. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's such a beautiful song. 
But all my wedding songs, to be honest, they're all Indian. (laughs) And they're a mixture of like very current Bollywood, super fun, high impact, high energy. You can just imagine the show I have planned for my Sangeet. My solo is like a three-part medley. (laughs) So like three different songs that are three different genres, so to speak. Kind of like what you're saying, to give variety. And then I've planned like a really boss girl squad kind of dance. And then as a surprise, I've got another dance plan which is more for after the reception, after, after, after party. I've got some Beyonce planned. Oh, it's so exciting. (laughs) It is. It is. I think dancing, because you mentioned you're a dancer, if you are a dancer, then it feeds your soul to dance. So getting to do that at your wedding and having a culture that allows you to do so much of it is obviously really nice. What is your favorite wedding movie? I think wedding crashes, mainly because <laughs> I'd like to think someone's getting up to that level of mischief at my wedding. If I had had a crasher, I totally would have been like, enjoy yourself, drink up, have a good time. It's a cultural experience, right, to attend an Indian wedding and you can actually sell tickets to your Indian wedding and people will buy them for like 500 to $700 a ticket. Girl, comp us some tickets and we will be there. <laughs> Yes, as soon as other countries will let us in. Oh, thank you so, so much for sharing your experience with us. You have such an amazing perspective. It's just been so inspiring talking to you on the other side of the world. Thanks, guys. So nice to meet you. Take care. Bye. Bye. We're all here for each other. So let's commiserate together. If you have any questions or want to share your story, email us at info at alteredpodcast.com. After I got engaged, I found myself doing all these traditional wedding things without necessarily knowing the history of them. Why are wedding dresses white? How did the idea of an engagement ring come about? Everyone has different ideas about the wedding party. Where did all that come from? So for our ending bit each week, we'll drop some super random wedding facts. Here are a few stats on the wedding industry in India. As of 2020, the wedding industry in India is approximately $50 billion. On average, there are 10 to 12 million weddings that take place in India per year. To give a sense of size comparison, India is the second largest wedding market at $50 billion, while America generates about $70 billion per year. There are 15 different types of weddings that are held throughout the country, depending on the region. And October through December are the most popular months to get married because of both weather and holidays. 